Morning, everybody. Good to see you, and happy Mother's Day again. We're glad that you've joined us today. Well, we do celebrate mothers today because we recognize the unique contribution that mothers make, not just obviously in giving us birth, but uh, throughout life. And then the next one up next month is going to be us dads, Father's Day. We're going to celebrate Father's Day again to celebrate and recognize the unique contribution that dads make, not just, of course, as sperm donors, but as fathers throughout life. But what exactly these contributions are that mothers and fathers make are becoming less and less clear in our culture. And that's because we are living in a time of great gender confusion. Other than the obvious differences that can be seen physically on the outside, we're not as sure anymore as a culture about what it is that really makes a man and a woman different from each other on the inside. Three years ago, it was just three years ago, it seems longer, when Bruce Jenner did an emotional interview with Diane Sawyer, and he announced that God had put the soul of a woman inside his masculine body. And here's part of what he said. This is part of the transcript of that interview. He said, I feel I was created by God who said, hey, let's give him the soul of a female and let's see how he deals with that. So here I am, a girl stuck in a guy's body. Now, if that is true, what a cruel thing it was for God to do. What a cruel thing. But I want you to notice the basis for this statement starts with the first two words, I feel. He didn't point to any genetic test or any science study that he could point to that gave him evidence that he did, in fact, have a feminine soul, because, of course, there's no science when it comes to something invisible like a soul. And, of course, there's no verse in the Bible saying that God does this kind of thing from time to time just to see how people deal with it. And, you, you know, obviously... Maybe you felt this way, and I kind of wondered when it first came out, because, you know, the circus that always surrounds the Kardashians, you you kind of have to wonder how much of what is being said is real. But I, I believe that Bruce, now Caitlin, was telling the truth and is telling the truth about how he, now she, feels. And that's because I've met others who feel the exact same way. People who have no social media credit to gain from feeling this way. And so we now in our culture, we we have a number of new words and terms that describe how individuals like Bruce, Caitlyn, Jenner feels. So I just want to identify some of these terms to give us an understanding of kind of the landscape of of what's going on in our culture. You're probably well familiar with these terms, but just to make sure. One is called gender dysphoria. That's when one's emotional identity is opposite of their biological sex. Another term is non-binary. That means to identify as neither male nor female. And then um, an older term in our culture is transgender. That means to be in transition from one gender to another gender. This past October, this last year, the state of California passed into law the Gender Recognition Act. I've put up the Senate bill, or is it the Assembly bill? Senate bill. Senate bill number there, in case you want to look up the wording for this yourself. But if you look to section one of this new legislation, the opening line is this, gender identification is fundamentally personal. That's the opening line of the new law here in the state of California that was passed and signed into law back in October. And so the question I want to address is, is is that in fact true? Is gender identification fundamentally personal? Are the way we feel about our gender, is that 
as deep as gender goes. Is that the very foundation of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman? Well, the first words that are mentioned in the Bible on the topic of gender is found in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter, verse 27. Here's what we read. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, what this implies in part is that we don't personally select our gender. It is an assignment from God. And what that means is, however we feel about it, and however we struggle about it, that that does not override the assignment. Now, the Bible isn't the only one that gives us the data point that seems to indicate that there's something much deeper, of course, than, than feelings that drive this thing called gender. Science is increasingly finding evidence to support that gender goes pretty deep, far deeper than we've thought before, as more and more science is applied to this question. Now, I want to recommend a book to you to read if you want to read more on this. This is not a Christian book. This is a science book. It's, uh, it's called Why Gender Matters. It's written by Dr. Leonard Sachs. A little background on him. He received his PhD in psychology in the 1980s. And as such, he was taught what, what most um, schools of psychology teach, and that is that gender is a cultural construct. Uh, it's kind of environmental, is, is the idea. Now, we've talked in this message series how culture is kind of like pickle juice. So just to remind you what we're saying here is every pickle starts out as a cucumber, and it's put into a jar of brine, and it's left to soak, and over time, the the flavor of whatever is in that brine, if it's jalapeno pickles or kosher dills or sweet pickles, whatever the brine is, is soaks into the pores of that cucumber, and it changes the flavor of that cucumber, and that's the condition of being pickled. And so I've used that analogy to describe what happens to us in any culture. We are born kind of like cucumbers, and then we are raised in the jar in the juice of our culture. And whatever our culture values, whatever our culture thinks, that that just kind of feels normal to us. It, it, it just becomes how we think and how we feel. We are pickled. And so if gender is a cultural construct, what that is saying, to use our analogy, is that gender is in the juice. And so if our environment, our culture, the, 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 the condition that we were raised in, the way we were treated, the feelings that we have, are, are more of the blue tint, you know, the masculine tint, if the juice is a little more blue, then we will turn out a little more masculine. If the juice is a little more pink, then we're going to turn out a little more feminine. And that's kind of the, the idea that most schools of psychology teach. But Dr. Sachs, after being trained as a psychologist, he decided that he really wanted to be a pediatrician. So he went on and got his medical degree and opened up a practice as a pediatrician. And in his practice, as he began to treat and work with children, boys and girls, he observe what most parents observe, and that is the differences appear to be pretty deep from the onset. They appear to be, to use our analogy, on the cucumber level, not on the juice level. So he started to examine the scientific studies on gender, and he found that science agrees. And this book really categorizes and lists just a ton of studies on this. So I would encourage you to, we don't have time to go through these, but just to give you a little sample, science makes it really clear that at a brain level, the brains of little girls and little boys are very different in the way they're wired. The hearing ranges of boys and girls are very, very different. 
The visual tracking abilities between a boy and between a girl are very different. Now, there's ranges, but you take the range of boys and the range of girls, and it's a very different range on all of these. They, they learn very, very differently. Now, if you're a parent, you've experienced this. And probably if you're in education, you've experienced this. And so it appears that we are created by God. We are brought into this world as either a blue or a pink cucumber, and then we are put in whatever the juice of our culture is. So the question then is, how did our culture become so confused about something that used to be so obvious, something as obvious as gender? Well, before I look at the progression that led us to where we are today, I want to make, first of all, it very clear that what we are talking about in this issue are real people who are really struggling. I mean, just imagine what it must feel like to have your emotional identity be different than your biological sex. I mean, that's got to feel awful. So these, these are real people that are struggling with these issues. This is not just a debate that's taking place in maybe a classroom or even a courtroom. This is a debate that is taking place in the minds and the hearts of real people now who are feeling real emotions and struggling with real rejection because of this. I want us to understand this. This is not just an important issue in our culture to debate. This is about important people in our culture. But what, what is needed is a clear understanding of what is true in addition to a deep compassion and heart for the struggle. So I want to give us, step back and give us kind of a little run-up in our culture into kind of the background of how, how did we get to this place now in 2018. Well, here's where it began in our culture. First, sex became selfish. This is where it began. Sex fundamentally became selfish in our culture. And what I mean by that is selfish sex focuses on the feelings of pleasure or also the relational intimacy that comes with sex. So whatever brings pleasure to me becomes the point in the area of sex. That's selfish sex. Now, there is no denying the pleasure of sex. Of all of the physical pleasures that we can feel, there is pretty widespread agreement that sex, if not at the very top, is right up there. It is a gift from God. But as amazing as it is, pleasure is not the primary point of sex. It is a secondary matter, not a primary matter. And in our culture, those have become reversed. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, God is identifying the real purpose of sex, the primary purpose of sex. In Malachi 2, 14 through 15, it starts with these words. You ask why. The why question that's being asked of God is, why is our life crumbling before us? Why are things going so badly for us? And so here's what God says. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Let me talk our way through what God is saying here. God made it. It was, it was he that set things up so that a man and a woman would fit together like one. That's what it's talking about here. 
Has not the Lord made them one? Now, what he's talking about is sex. Has not the Lord created a man and woman in such a way that they can come together sexually as one? Now, the act of sex has two parts, and they're identified here. There is the one in flesh part, the physical component, and then there is the one in spirit part. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Now, sex is not just so that our bodies could experience the physical pleasure of sex, but so that we could also experience the relational intimacy that is to accompany sexual activity. So sex involves both body and spirit. If it's just about the physical pleasure only and not the relationship, then it's less than what God intended it to be. And God says they are they're mine. They, they are his is what he's saying. What, what he's saying here is I designed all of this. I own the copyright on this, on sex. So what was God's purpose? Why did he make it so pleasurable physically and so tied into relational intimacy? Why one? Well, he says because he was seeking godly offspring. Children are the real prize of sex. Now, obviously, we have far more sex than we do children. But the reason sex is so pleasurable and so relational is so that a man and a woman wouldn't just have sex for the fun of it and then go their separate ways, but so that they would form the foundation on which children not only could exist, but could grow up and be raised. Now, not just any kind of child, not just another member of the species that can survive birth, but godly children. That's what God wants. That's what God's intent was. A godly child is not a perfect child because nobody's perfect, but to be godly means to live a God-referenced life. As you move through life, you're continually referencing, what does God say on this? What, what does God value here? And you work to align your life accordingly. Now, the ideal condition for the raising of godly children involves three elements. This is God's design. It requires a godly father, it requires a godly mother, and it requires a binding contract called marriage. That's what this passage is talking about. He's talking about the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, covenant is a word we don't use a lot, but the modern translation would be contract. That's what marriage is. It is a contract. It is a binding contract. Now, contracts move private agreements into the public arena. The way you know you've signed a contract is if you break it, the matter goes to court. If you just lie to someone and get away with it, no court's ever involved. Now, you can have sex with someone in part ways. But if you marry someone and decide to part ways... Well, now you got to go through the court systems. It's a binding contract. Well, why? why? Why does the public have to get involved in marriage? This is one of the questions our culture is asking. Why do you need a piece of paper? If we love each other, who needs a piece of paper? Well, that piece of paper represents not just an agreement between two people, but an agreement that all of society has an interest in. That's why contracts are drawn up. That's why there's a legal system. That's why there's recourse for when contracts are violated. Because a society is built on the strength of its ability to enforce important agreements that are made between the people of that society. 
For example, if business agreements could just be broken and there would be no recourse, there'd be no justice brought, they couldn't be uh, enforced in court, then what, what effect would our economy have? Well, I can point to several countries in the world and say it'd be just like that. You know, if you can't get justice, you know, the economy craters. Now, the future of any society is built not just on its economic engine, but primarily on the next generation, the children. We are always one generation away from extinction. The future is the children. And children, it turns out, need a far more stable foundation than just the momentary pleasure that sex brings or the momentary feelings of intimacy that sex brings. They're going to have needs that last longer than one moment. I mean, I will never, and several of us have said this up here, you'll never forget the birth of your kids, holding them for the first time. And I, I remember not only the, the tremendous sacrifice my wife went through to have our two kids, but I remember looking at her and our first child and then our second child and the thought that occurred to me, because our first child was born on January 6th, and I was hoping it was going to be December, you know, so we could get the dependent thing <laughs> on the taxes. And I remember, because that was in my mind, I remember thinking, wow, this is one time the IRS has really got it right. <laughs> dependent is the perfect word for this right here. This child is so dependent. And honestly, my wife is so dependent. She really, in order for us to have this child, she really believed that I was going to be there for her and these two kids. She wouldn't have taken that risk if she didn't really believe that. That's why it takes a binding contract. And this is why in this passage in Malachi, God is angry. He says, I, I was a witness to that commitment. It wasn't just whatever the legal public agreements were of that culture and time that made this a marriage. I was the invisible and more important witness that heard these words that were said between the two of the commitments that were represented by them. And now, he's speaking to the guy, you guys are breaking faith. They have led their wives to believe that they will be there, and they have had children, and now they're leaving them. And God says, I'm furious. Kids do the best with all three in place. Now, I know that children are not in everyone's future. I know that some will never marry and never have kids. I know that some will marry and will not be able to have kids. In both cases, God has other valuable and very important and in many cases unique work for individuals in those situations to do. But that exception does not change God's intended purpose and design for sex. Now, let me ask you parents this question. How well does being selfish and raising kids go together? They don't at all, do they? I mean, it starts out, first of all, the little one will rob you of all kinds of sleep, right? It just starts out right at the beginning. You have no freedom. You can't even come up with eight hours of sleep. I mean, they cost what? How much do they cost now? 280, almost $300,000 to raise? That's, that's a lot of money you could have spent on yourself that you end up spending on your child. They cut into, I don't even know what me time is hardly anymore when my kids were born. 
They cut into your me time. Now, if you're a woman, boy, you really pay a price. They do all kinds of hormonal things to you. Some, some of them go away after birth. Some of them linger. They can alter your figure and give you physical challenges for the rest of your life. If you decide to stay home with them, they will effectively immediately end your career. And for both of us, fathers and mothers, this has been my experience. They will drain you more physically when you're young and more emotionally when you get older. But even when they leave, there's still a price to pay, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There is a lot of joy in having kids. But if you have kids, you're single, do whatever you want to do, life is over. It's done. And historically, that was the price that you had to pay every time you decide to have sex. You couldn't be selfish about sex, but not anymore. With the rise of birth control, you can have all the sex you want with very little risk of actually having the kids that usually come with sex. Now, I'm not saying that birth control is wrong. We use birth control. But let's be honest. Birth control can often be used primarily from a selfish motive. You can get all the pleasure you want without any of the risk of having the kids. I mean, if if you want to make your life just about money and fun and travel, well, then you don't want kids because they put a dent in that. So if you don't want your financial goals and your personal life disrupted by kids, but you still want to have sex, well, you can use birth control for that reason. And if you don't want to get married, birth control is absolutely essential tool if, if you want to have sex, too. And then there is the most devastating form of birth control called abortion. Over 600,000 unborn babies are killed every year in the U.S. Now, they are called unwanted pregnancies, but to God, there is no unwanted pregnancy. There's no unwanted life. Now, I know in our culture, it's a political hot rod. It's a hot wire. It's, it's cloaked, and I'll, I'll say it, it's cloaked as a woman's right to choose but there is no masking the fact that it is ending a life for selfish reasons. Now, the reason it's called a woman's right to choose is because there is no minimizing the high price that women pay to have children. That's why we celebrate mothers on this day. That's why Mother's Day is such a big day. And, and us dads, we know Mother's Day is a much bigger deal than Father's Day. Isn't it? It is. And I'm okay with that. That's as it should be, it seems to me. Because the women, it is their body and they pay a high price. And that's why it's right to honor their unselfishness, especially in this age of selfish sex when so many children never see the light of day. Now, divorce, of course, is the other casualty of selfish sex. Now, divorce isn't new, of course. That's, in fact, what God was speaking about in this passage in Malachi 2,400 years ago. But something amazing happened in our culture in the 1970s up into about the mid-80s. The divorce rate doubled from 25% to 50%. We ended the 60s at 25%. 
And by the middle of the 80s, it was 50%, and it's been up and down a little bit, but kind of holding there since then. Why? You have to look at something that significant. What happened in just 12 or 13 years that doubled the divorce rate? Well, in the 60s, the years that preceded that decade, sex declared its independence in our culture. It's now referred to as the sexual revolution. Now, before the sexual revolution, marriage ruled over the emotions of love and the pleasures of sex. Marriage told sex that if you want to have sex, first, you must forsake all others. You must pick one and forsake all others and be faithful to that one, not as long as you feel, but until your body is cold, until you die. Marriage ruled. But that's why it's called the sexual revolution is because sex declared independence. And now emotional love and sexual pleasure rule. What that means now, this affected marriage. If you no longer feel intimate or love for the person you're married to, well, you're free to leave. And follow that feeling wherever it goes and to whomever it leads you to. So this is how it began. Sex became fundamentally selfish. Next, orientation became authoritative. That couldn't have happened without the first. Here's why. If my feelings are boss, they're the top, and sex and marriage are the servants of my feelings of love, then the only question that needs to be matter, answered in this matter is, who do I feel love towards? If I feel love for a member of the same sex or the opposite sex, it really doesn't matter. My feelings of love are primary. How I feel is number one, so I should be able to have sex with and marry whomever love points me toward. Now, that wouldn't have made sense if we hadn't fundamentally changed sex to be selfish. Now, I want you to understand this very clearly. Sexual orientation is very real. Orientation simply is another way of saying attraction. You know, when I first saw my future wife, I was oriented her direction. I was very attracted. Not because of who she was. Honestly, I didn't even know her name. I didn't know anything about her. I hadn't even talked to her. My attraction was based solely on the fact that she was and is a beautiful woman. That's as far as my attraction went, initially. And she wasn't the only woman that I was ever attracted to. And that's because my sexual orientation is called heter heterosexual. Hetero is a Greek word. The word is heteros, which means of a different kind. So I'm sexually attracted to members of the different or the opposite sex. A homosexual orientation means, the Greek word is homos, and it means the same. And so they're simply attracted to members of the same sex. Now there is nothing, absolutely nothing new about these two orientations. They've both existed in recorded human history. Now what is new and entirely brand new in our culture and in our time is the elevation of orientation to the same status as race. 
That's something entirely new. And this is due in large part to the idea of the gay gene. I don't know if you remember the 90s. There was a lot of talk about the gay gene. You may know it by the more popular phrase, born this way. I was born this way. I was, my orientation is genetic. I was born this way. And the idea that orientation is genetic, what that means is orientation is now on the same level as skin color, eye color, genetics. It's a matter of genetics. And what that means is it's, it's not right or wrong. Morals doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, I, I had nothing to do with the blue eyes I have. So me having blue eyes can't be wrong, right? can't be a sin. It's the way I was born. A sin is what you choose to do. Not, I certainly didn't pick the color of my eyes or my skin or my hair color. That's just how I was born. And so in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about the gay gene and born this way. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the gay gene was never found. And I... You haven't heard about it for a long time. You know why? The search has been called off, and now it's anyone who tries to search for the gay gene is, is opposed. I mean, it takes a lot of money to try to search for genetics, something, stuff like that. And so it's not, it's not funded, and it's been called off. Well, who called it off? The LGBT community called it off. Why? The reason is because born this way is incompatible with the B and the T part of LGBT. If there could be a gay gene found, that would support the cause of the L and G, the lesbian, the gay. But not the bisexual, not the transgender, the B and the T. You see, the idea of born this way and transgender are in opposition to each other. What does transgender say? Not that I was born this way. Now, what they're saying is I was born this way and now I'm but I feel that way. So born this way has now transitioned in our culture to feel this way. It's very different. Transgender says, I feel this way. That's very different than born this way. You see, if, if you're born gay, those genes are authoritative. What that also means then, logically, is if you're born male, then so should those genes be authoritative. Now, as I said, the gay gene was never found, but when it comes to male and female genetics, oh, there's lots of science on that. We have no problem identifying male genes and female genes. That's well documented. So here's the challenge for the LGBT movement. What do you tell a boy who feels like a girl? Well, if you are promoting the born this way, then what you have to say is, sorry, you have to stick with the way you were born. Because I was born this way with this orientation, and I've got to, if it's genetics, I mean, I've I got to stick this way. But now, if, if how I feel is the real authority, you can't say that. This is why the search was called off. Finding a gay gene would damage the transgender cause. So what started as born this way is now feel this way. And because the attention span, attention span of our culture is really short, almost nobody remembers that. Hey, whatever happened to born this way? But born this way idea has already carried the freight that it needed to carry, and that is it's raised these matters to the level of race. 
And therefore, these matters are now feelings. How I feel this way is now a matter of rights and race and discrimination. Now, the other problem with born this way is that some is the B part. Some feel like having sex with both the same sex and the opposite sex. They are, by definition, bisexual. But again, think through this logically. If same-sex attraction is genetic, then how do you explain the opposite sex part of bisexuality? It would be like me saying, I'm blue-eyed one day and brown-eyed the next day. Genes don't change like that. You see, so it began to sound more and more like personal choice based on what I want and how I feel, and less and less like genetics that I'm bound to. And the reason is because our sexual orientation, whatever it is, and our desires sexually, while they are very, very real, they were never designed to be our authority. They were never designed to rule over us. Our authority is God. And so this is what God says to all of us. Whether our orientation is towards the opposite sex or the same sex. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. The word pagan means people for whom they... God is not a reference. So that opening statement is God's will that that we, all of us, should be sanctified. Sanctified is the Greek verb here for the word holy. To be holy means to make choices that line up with the values and the ways of God. Now, God would not ask us to do what is impossible. This means something very powerful about us. We have the capacity to grow in holiness. And the centerpiece of that capacity is the ability to control the desires of our body. That is a uniquely human trait. We can avoid sexual immorality. For the animals, sex is not a moral matter at all. It's a matter of instinct, but not for us. It's a moral issue for us. Now, it's not easy to do, but over time, we can learn to control our bodies. We can learn to tell our desires, no, you're not going there. Now, animals can't do this. Their instincts rule them, not us. This is why... God's will on this matter is not just for those who are attracted to the same sex, but for those who are attracted to the opposite sex, for all of us. Why? Because when sex becomes selfish and passions rule, how I feel rules, you know who pays the biggest price? Children. They always pay the biggest price on this one. So orientation itself is not a sin. That's just a desire. You know, I I am oriented towards women. That's not a sin. It becomes a sin if I have sex with a woman that is not my wife. So the authority is not our sexual orientation, but our sexual holiness. That's the authority. 
we're all oriented towards passionate lust. And this is the thing about passion. You let passion go, and it just goes. And it gets bigger and weirder as it goes. So we all need to learn how to control our own bodies. And children are the ones who have paid a dear price for the lack of sexual holiness in our culture. Some of them have never seen the light of day. They've never been born. Many have had their lives ripped apart by divorce. Now, hear me clearly on this. God's grace can and does forgive and heal. But if you're on the edge of, let's say, maybe you're contemplating divorce. Now, there are some reasons where divorce might be needed. But don't divorce for selfish reasons, for emotional reasons. You have no idea how much your children need all three parts of God's plan. A father, a mother, and a contract. So once sex became selfish, and once orientation became authoritative, well then, we are where we are. Gender became fluid. You see, here's how it goes. Once feelings became the top thing, became boss, became ruler, and marriage became its servant, well then, it was only a matter of time before marriage itself was going to be redefined to include whomever I have feelings for. And so three years ago, actually just a little less than three years, June 2015, the Supreme Court decided by a vote of five to four that marriage is now a genderless institution. And in doing so, they didn't just change the definition of marriage. They opened the door to change the definition of gender itself. That's because gender is the foundation on which marriage was established. You don't have marriage without male and female. So when you legally redefine marriage, you are redefining fundamentally the purpose of marriage. That decision three years ago was the legal representation of the fact that sex in our culture is now selfish. I mean, same-sex couples can adopt children, but they cannot make children. So it's no longer primarily about the kids, about the children that might result from the union. It's primarily about fulfilling the sexual and relational desires that two people have, whatever they are. And once you redefine marriage, you will next have to redefine these two essential elements that support the former definition and the former purpose of marriage, male and female. And once marriage became as fluid as our ever-changing personal desires, it was just a matter of time before gender followed. And that's where we are, just three years later. So if who you feel love toward is authoritative, then who you feel you are is also authoritative. So Bruce Jenner can declare himself to be a woman, and the genetics do not matter. The science is irrelevant, which is pretty amazing for a scientific culture like ours. Now, as I said at the beginning, these feelings are not unimportant. I'm not saying who cares how people feel. No, the feelings are real, and they represent real struggles. But once our feelings, any of our feelings, become the authority, 
we are in for a very disorienting and painful ride. But again, who pays the biggest price for our sexual orientation, gender fluid experiment? It's the kids. Three weeks ago, NBC News reported a recent study estimating that the number of children in need of mental health care was one in five. Now just think about that. That, That's a stunning number. Now, like often on the nightly news, they didn't reference how the study was conducted and what it was linked to and why or any of those kinds of things, and I haven't really looked into why that is. So I don't know how they came up with that number or what the data shows exactly. But the point is clear. Children in this culture are in serious trouble. And you look at any study, and and the, the generation now in school, they're in trouble. Now, I don't know all of the reasons, but I don't think it's just a coincidence that these problems are following on the heels of the rapid acceleration and advance of selfish sex in our culture. What our culture is saying is, I want to have sex with whomever I want to have sex, and the kids be damned. That's what our culture is saying. We don't care about the kids. And today, we honor moms. We honor those of you who are mothers. Because you have done what is increasingly unusual in our culture. We honor the sacrifice that you've made. And we know, we know that over and over again, when your needs and your desires ran up against our needs, that over and over and over again, our needs won. And your desires took a back seat. And without your selfless sacrifice, we would not be where we are. We might not even be. And in a culture that is increasingly about living for our feelings, we are so grateful that you didn't. That you loved us and you had us. And may there be more of you and not less of you as our culture moves forward. Let's pray. Father, the pain in our culture is deafening. God, help us to know what our part is, how we can help. Give us a heart for those who are struggling, not just an emotion of opposition, maybe. Show us how we can help, what we can do, what we can say. May God, we pray that our culture would return to the rock that is your word and is you. And away from the tumultuous ocean and sea and waves that is our emotions. God, we pray that you would save this community and help us to be a part of that. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.